Well, we are traveling through the book of Matthew, so why don't you turn to Matthew chapter 13 as we continue our study. A lawyer wanting to be impressive said, I will speak on the highest authority, the Bible. And then he quoted Job 2.4, all that a man hath will he give for his life. Um, the other attorney, the, the uh, opposing attorney, being a Christian who also read the Bible fairly um, regularly, um, he replied, he said, apparently this other attorney thinks he's higher authority. There's no other higher authority than Satan. Um, because the guy hadn't done his homework, as they often do. Job chapter 2, uh, verse 4 is the, the scripture he was quoting, and he just quoted half of it. Um, and as it turns out, uh, <laughs> um, it says, you know, Job 2, 4 says, And Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, yea, all that a man hath will he give for his life. It's funny how you can quote scripture um, and it doesn't always work so good uh, when you don't really look at the context. And I love that we get to go right through this, this uh, scripture and we get to look at what it actually means and what we're learning here. Um, and we wanna go deeper. Now, I always like to remind us that we're not, we're barely even scratching the, the, the surface of the Bible. I hope you understand that. Um, and I, I get a sense, I don't know about you guys, but I have to just give this as sort of a disclaimer. I get a sense that as we're going through these parables that we're missing a lot. And you say, well, Brenda, why shouldn't we find it? Shouldn't we figure it out? Well, yes, uh, but don't put pressure on me. Uh, this, is, this is something that I, I, I joke about that, but um, there's so much in these parables and there's something about the nature of these parables that I wanna show you tonight that um, is, is uh, one of those layer upon layer. The Bible is, is an amazing book of layers. Um, somebody says it's like an onion, you know, layer upon layer. It's like peeling an onion, you know, and, the, and there's different truths and meanings and sometimes dual and triple fulfillments of any single prophecy. Like, uh, I think it's such an intricate um, message system. And one of the reasons why I think we see that is it shows the fingerprints of God on the scriptures. There's no other book that has such intricacy and layer upon layer. And we've kind of demonstrated that. Even in Matthew, when we were in chapter one, when we talked about the you know, multiples of seven in chapter one of the genealogy, like that's a layer that's there mathematically that if you're a real mathematician and you look at the Greek text, like Ivan, Dr. Ivan Panin spent his whole life looking at Matthew chapter one and, and he saw how just everything was a multiple of seven. Like how does that work out? A, a real genealogy of someone throughout history, how does that happen? It's just one of those layers. We see the fingerprints of God. But I think we see that uh, in so many areas. Like, you know, just on, on the you know, first layer, you got the Bible and the Old Testament stories. They're, they're great, good enough by themselves. But then, you know, if you're a, a sort of a regular Bible reader, you start to see all the pictures and images that are embedded in there. For example, when you, when you read the story of Moses in the wilderness as he strikes the rock and water comes out, you start to see um, where that rock, uh, it, it was a, an amazing depiction of Jesus Christ. First um, Corinthians chapter 10, verse uh, one through four. Moreover, brethren, I would not that you should be ignorant how that all, all our fathers were under the cloud and passed through the sea and were all baptized unto Moses in the cloud and in the sea and did all eat the same spiritual meat and drink the same spiritual drink. For they drank of that spiritual rock that followed them. And it says that rock was Christ. Um, and I've highlighted that, uh, you know, because uh, that, that's a major, major scripture for you and for me, 
uh, to, to see, wow, that gives us license to see the pictures, the types in the Bible that's so important and so good. So um, this is the kind of layer, you know, where you say, okay, the rock that was smitten, it's a perfect example. You know, Jesus was smitten and out of that death on the cross brought forth life. And Jesus talked about, I am the living water. If you drink of this water that I give, you'll never thirst again. And so that imagery starts to really sort of match up uh, kind of beautifully, um, you know, just that rock was Christ that followed them. Well, all that to say, Jesus is embedded in the, all the scriptures, old and new, of course, um, and Old Testament, Old Testament pictures the New Testament truths, and New Testament also pictures Old Testament truths. Um, you need both. Any pastor or church that sort of dismisses the, the one or the other, um, I think you should be leery of them. Uh, if one, you say, well, who dismisses the Old Testament? Um, well, Andy Stanley, he, he's, he's the guy that said, we need to unhitch ourselves from the Old Testament. Now, I know that he's sort of backpedaled a little bit. Um, and and when, when he said that, it caused a bit of a stir. But I'm just saying, there's kind of a heart that's behind that. It's not as much what he's saying as much as what he, I think he actually what he thinks. And uh, his dad was pretty squared away, but poor Andy didn't get the memo on the Old Testament. I'm just saying, forgive me if you think I'm calling somebody out, but I am. And then, um, well, who, who dismisses the New Testament? Oh, some of the Messianic uh, churches and stuff that are very hyper, you know, let's get back to our Judaistic roots. Now, if you know me, I'm very thankful for our link to Judaism. If it wasn't for Judaism, none of us would be here. Jesus was a Jew. But Christianity doesn't do away with Judaism. It's, it's a continuation of Judaism. Uh, Christianity is the fulfillment of the Messiah of the Jews. Now, the Jews don't know that, but these messianic churches, uh, some of them, uh, tend to be a little bit heavy on Torah. Let's just read the Torah. Uh, the Old Testament, or the Pentateuch, the first five books of the, the Old Testament, and they say, forget the New Testament, that's not, that's not really that important. And it, it's like an emphasis thing. I think a perfect balance, reading the old and the new, it's all part of God's holy word, and we need both to unlock each other. So all that to say, that's kind of a key if you're gonna understand, for example, the parables that are before us. We've been studying this past week or two the parables uh, of our Lord Jesus talking about the parables of the kingdom. And the first one we covered um, uh, the last couple weeks was the parable of the sower. Um, and that was verses uh, you know, three through nine here uh, in our text. Uh, and uh, we looked at that, I think that was last, um, a week ago Sunday is when we covered that one. Um, and so that, that's the first one, the parable of the sower. Then um, the second one is, we have the parable of uh, the tares. Um, oh, I see, this monitor's not working. That's what's happening. Uh, FYI, I was like, why isn't anything working? Then I see it up on the wall, oh, it is working. That's great. Okay, thank you. <laughs> um, I don't know if we can fix that down here. That'd be helpful. Um, but uh, anyway, um, all that to say, uh, the parable of the tares we looked at, and we're going to kind of dive back into that, and there's a reason uh, we'll do that tonight. And then the third parable was the parable of the mustard seed. We talked about that last Wednesday night. And, uh, and then you have uh, the parable of the leaven uh, in verse 33. And we sort of finished on that high note uh, last, last, 30, last week, 33, about the parable where uh, the woman took and hid three measures of meal um, along with some leaven. And the leaven leavened the whole lump. And we talked about how leaven is a type of sin and the, um, it's, uh, the parables often are speaking to the church of Jesus. Uh, a little sin puffs up. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. We talked about that. 
Um, and then um, on this wheat and tares one, we need to kind of get that back in our mind because Jesus is gonna talk about this some more, the, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And uh, if you remember, last week we saw some pictures of like the difference between wheat and tares. Um, as it turns out, um, you know, the, the, um, the seeds on the right there, um, the right seed is a wheat seed and the left seed is a tare seed, uh, which is pretty similar if you ask me. Uh, it'd be hard to tell the difference. Um, you know, one thing about this, uh, um, this idea of the sowing of the tares, does anybody remember what was happening uh, that allowed the, the wicked one to come and sow the, the seed? Well, as it turns out, as the, the uh, men were sleeping, <laughs> There's an old 500-year-old uh, painting called The Enemy Sowing Darnell Seeds by Heinrich Fulmauer in 1526. And he painted this kind of crazy-looking uh, picture that I think is kind of funny. I don't know if you guys can see that, but um, it's the wicked one sowing seed. While the, you can see the priest with the pointy hat, he's in the church there sleeping along with a few other people. They're all asleep in the church. And why is there? The chicken-footed Satan is walking. Um, do you see his chicken feet there? Um, where do you think he, the painter got that idea? This is when people try to paint stuff from the Bible and it usually looks pretty hideous. Uh, but I thought, I think this one's kind of funny. Um, the, the birds of the air is part of the thing that is depicting Satan in these parables. So anyway, this guy gets it right. But, um, but uh, we read last week how um, Jesus said, let both grow together. And at the time of harvest, uh, the reapers are gonna come and gather uh, together first the tares and separate them out and then throw them in the fire and burn them and then, then the wheat will be harvested after that. Um, and it's kind of interesting. How do you tell a, a, grain, a, a stock of wheat versus a tare in, in real life? Well, um, one of the things that you can read about on this is kind of interesting is um, wheat, the difference between wheat and tares, they look similar, but the tares never really produce real fruit it's just a weed. It looks like wheat, but it's not. And so the top stays fluffy and light and it's got no substance. But a, a, a grain of wheat will actually start to grow wheat, which makes it heavy. And as it turns out, the, the wheat tends to bow down. That's kind of an interesting thing. You can see the wheat start to bow down while the tares stand up pridefully. Um, there's kind of an interesting imagery there. And that's how they would wait. After the wheat was ready to harvest, the wheat would bow down humbly and then the tares would stay up pridefully. And you just pull those out, throw them into uh, the fire and then harvest the wheat. Kind of interesting sideline note. Um, but that's where we sort of pick up here in Matthew chapter 13. Um, where we get to see, uh, you know, the, um, the, the, some of the descriptions of what Jesus is talking about. So in verse 34, we pick it up. It says, all these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Isn't that interesting? Um, you know, this, this is a scripture quoting that we've talked about before. Psalm 78, verse two. I, I've shown this to you before, but it's that little scripture that basically uh, points out that this is something that Jesus would do. I will open my mouth in a parable. I will utter dark sayings of old. And that's just Jesus fulfilling. Realize that some of the Psalms, this is, this is so huge. Some of the Psalms are written about Jesus. We call them messianic Psalms. And when you read those Psalms and you see Jesus embedded in the Psalms prophetically, it's profound. It makes the Psalms come alive to a whole nother level. Um, 
uh, great stuff. But um, um, when you read the Psalms, consider Jesus. But this is one of the things. Verse 35 is Jesus's quoting of actually more the Septuagint version of, the, um, of this same verse from Isaiah. And he says, I will utter here in our text, I will utter things that which have been kept secret. Um, and that's kind of the operative word there, secret from the foundation of the world. Things that are designed to be revealed later. Now, when would Jesus reveal some of these secrets? Um, as it turns out, a lot of the secrets of the Bible will be revealed in time. Um, and I think there might be two tiers of that that we should maybe sit up and take note. One tier is there was a lot of mysteries that were unsealed or, or sealed up until Jesus came, until the Messiah came, lived on the earth, died on the cross, was buried and then rose from the grave. Suddenly, all kinds of scriptures from the Old Testament were unlocked and unsealed and no longer secret, but revealed. Jesus was revealed in the Old Testament, but, but the Jews didn't see it until after. Uh, the, um, and, and then some of them still don't see it. Uh, but we as Gentiles are the ones who actually got to see the, the Jesus as the fulfillment of the Old Testament. The second sort of revealing would be after Jesus died, rose again, ascended to heaven, that unlocked so much of the Bible. But there's another layer of prophecy, and we talk about that. That's one of the things we, we still see as, as being revealed and unveiled in time. The closer we get to the time of the end, the more we'll understand about Bible prophecy. Um, the reason I point that one out is there's critics of the pre-trib view. For example, the amillennialists. They'll say, our view of Bible prophecy is the oldest view. It's the same view that Martin Luther had. I wouldn't boast on that, by the way. Because Martin Luther also said the Jews were, like, you don't want to read Martin Luther's book on the Jews. It's, it's, it's the worst book I've ever read, uh, like horribly. Martin Luther did some good things, and I'm thankful for them, but he also did some really bad things. As, as Probably one of the most anti-Semitic people in all of history was Martin Luther. And it's because of his wrong view of end times. Now, I don't, I don't, I don't criticize him as much um, because I can understand why they felt that 500 years ago. Um, Bible prophecy was locked up even back then. Um, can you imagine reading, for example, Ezekiel 38 um, uh, in 500 years ago? Well, Israel is gonna be attacked by Russia, uh, the Gog and the leader of Gog, Magog, uh, uh, Russia, Gog, Magog, and uh, Iran and Russia is gonna attack along with Turkey and Sudan uh, uh, into Israel, the land. And, and uh, there's this weird weapon that's gonna be used where bodies are gonna be toxic and can you, what would you think of that? Well, first of all, Israel didn't even exist as a nation when Martin Luther was around. They, they were, they'd been gone for 1,500 years. So you'd kind of think, oh, this must be figurative. <clears throat> and that's what <clears throat> all the all-millennialists, they view all Bible prophecy as figurative. They don't take it literally. I understand why they did that 500 years ago. Hello, time to wake up. We're seeing Bible prophecy literally being fulfilled before our eyes today. And you gotta change your notes. It's time to sit up and go, Wow, the stuff that's going on in the world is exactly. See, and, and if you talk, some of the, my millennial buddies that I talk to, uh, that's a hard one for them. They don't have a good answer for that. What a coincidence. It is kind of turning out. But that, what a coincidence. Israel became a nation after 2,000 years, just like Ezekiel 36 and 37 said would happen literally. It's happened literally. You got to change the notes. Time to figure it out. Uh, preterism, amillennialism uh, is, is more figurative. We, we take the Bible quite literally, and I think that's always been very rewarding. And, and so their boast, we have the oldest view of end times prophecy. Uh, and I say, that's not something to boast about because prophecy will be revealed as we get closer 
Um, remember Daniel was told to seal up the words of the book until the time of the end. And then the book of Revelation said, don't seal up these words until the time of the end. So all that to say, um, you know, Mark chapter uh, four, verses 11 through 14 says, and he said unto them, unto you is given to know the mystery of the kingdom of God. But unto them that are without, all these things are done in parables. Um, that seeing they may see and not perceive and hearing they may hear and not understand. Lest at any time they should be converted and their sins should be forgiven them. Why mask the parables? Well, we've already kind of looked at this um, you know, to reveal secrets to his disciples, to conceal secrets to unbelievers, and to fulfill prophecy. We've already talked about that in previous uh, studies. In Mark chapter four, verse 22, as you go further into that chapter, um, it, it says, for there is nothing hid which shall not be manifested or made known, neither was anything kept secret, but that it should come abroad. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. And he said unto them, take heed what you hear. Um, with what measure you meet, it shall be measured to you and you, uh, unto you that hear shall be more given. So if you have ears to hear and you're listening, the Lord says, I'll give you even more. But if you shut your ears to the truth, the Lord says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna hide these things to you. You will not understand them. The more you take in, the more uh, the Lord will reveal his secrets to you. Some of the key secrets uh, are locked away in, in these parables that we're reading. Um, would you keep your finger here and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter two? I wanna show you something there. 1 Corinthians chapter two. Uh, this is Paul talking about the wisdom of God that is spoken in mysteries. Why does God speak in mystery? There's a lot of scripture on this. I just wanna give you some of the high points here. 1 Corinthians two. Um, verses seven through 10. It says in 1 Corinthians 2, 7, but we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the hidden wisdom which God ordained before the world unto our glory, which one of the princes of this world knew, for had they known it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his spirit, for the spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. Now this, this is an interesting verse because um, how many times have you heard, you know, um, verse 10 or verse nine, you know, uh, I has not seen nor ear heard, neither enter the heart of man the things which God has prepared for them that love him. Speaking of heaven, and you heard sermons on this. Now, it's okay if people do that, and I'll tell you why. Because he's quoting from Isaiah 64, 4, where I believe you can deduce that he's talking about heaven and the, the mysteries that we've yet to understand, but specifically heaven. But in this context, Paul is using Isaiah's passage in sort of a different way, not, not as much talking about heaven, but eye has not seen nor ear has heard the things that the Lord has prepared prophetically to reveal to us. That's the context here. The mysteries and the wisdom that God wants to show us. Paul's quoting that old Isaiah passage and the context of here is talking about the revealing by his spirit some of the mysteries of his word. And that's, that's what we're doing here with these parables. The kingdom parables should be revealing mysteries. And that's one of the reasons why I started out tonight by saying, I'm not sure we're even tapping barely into what the parables are fully about. We know to some degree, but I'll bet either if we are patient enough, uh, studious enough, 
Uh, or maybe when we get to heaven, we'll go, wow, we were missing a lot in the parables. I just have a hunch. I'm just, I'm just giving that to you uh, as a freebie. Uh, but anyway, back to Matthew chapter 13. Um, let's, let's get back into this. So Jesus says, man, I'm, I'm, um, I'm showing you um, these, these uh, parables and not one thing would be spoke. This is a season where he's only speaking in parables. Do you ever wonder if the disciples are like, can you stop speaking in parables now? It's like, uh, like they, it, that's what it says here, uh, that, that he said all these things. And without a parable, spake he not unto them. So this is a little season in his ministry where he's only speaking to them in parables. Um, this is really something. Um, so he reveals the deep things and, uh, and um, we see these dual applications of the Bible, but um, revealing to us by his spirit. Um, by the way, in that first Corinthians passage, do you, do you see one of the reasons why he doesn't reveal um, it said, which one of the princes um, um, of this world would know, for had they know it, known about Jesus, they would not have crucified our Lord of glory. Did you see what it said there? Um, that means that if they knew, they wouldn't have crucified him, and Jesus came to die on the cross for the sins of the world. So one of the other reasons that the, the, everything's a mystery, and Jesus is not speaking so openly and plainly, is some people need to be deceived so that his will was accomplished to be crucified on a cross. And I gotta say this, especially after the night after an election. Because some of you might say, man, I can't believe, like some people just don't get it. And you're like, what's going on? Why don't those people see, you know? Um, it, to me, it's heartbreaking to see how largely our nation voted for abortion state by state. Um, a lot of pro-abortion stuff measures passed around our country last night, which is heartbreaking. How, to me, it's like, how can you not see that the, you know, even if you're not a Christian or a Bible thumper, uh, just look at it biologically for 10 seconds. Look at what a, a baby in the mother's womb really is. Just look at it up close and you'll be shocked. It's actually a little person uh, that's got feelings and living a little life in there. And, and, and our whole world is so blind to that. Um, and you say, Brad, why, why, why? I don't know the answers, but I do wonder, you know, the Lord's, he, he made certain people blind so that they would crucify him. But in the last days, the Bible sort of teaches us that there's gonna be people blind so that his return would come sooner than later. Um, in a time of great peril and hardness of men's hearts and sin, people calling evil good and good evil, that would be the conditions for his coming. So when we see sort of a blindness and people voting that way, in a way, you're just kind of stunned. How, how can people think this way? You might just remember, well, maybe this is kind of what's, what, what Jesus was talking about when he was concealing a matter versus revealing a matter. And some people, you say, well, I don't know if I like that there seems there be chosen people to, to go be doomed to hell. Uh, we'll get into that when we get to predestination, divine election, but that's future uh, studies. We'll get into that. Well, anyway, all that to say, um, you know, how could they have not seen who Jesus was at this time? You know, they're gonna have Palm Sunday, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem. Um, the one whom they had pierced, the prophet says, there's so much stuff about Jesus, they should have said, oh, this sort of rings a bell. Uh, but they just didn't get it. Why? Because they were blind. Um, they were hidden. It was hidden. It was revealed only to some people, and that would be the Christians. So the parables are for the believers uh, to understand, not for the unbelievers. And, and the Lord says, I'm gonna sort that out. I'm gonna sort out who the unbelievers are and they're not gonna get it. They're gonna be blinded. And that's kind of where we find ourselves here. Now with these parables, some of the common threads so far we've seen is often a field, some seeds, uh, the sower, some, some fruit. Uh, and now Jesus is gonna clarify some confusion uh, that we saw uh, uh, later on. Verse 36, 
It says in verse 36, then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house and his disciples came unto him saying, declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. Um, now, the first thing I have to note is, isn't it cool that the disciples are willing to ask? Have you ever been in a meeting or something where people are talking about something and you don't have any idea what they're talking about? But you're like, I'm not gonna say anything. I don't wanna be the dupe. Everybody, everybody seems to understand it. Now, I've noticed, this is a funny thing. Have you ever noticed, especially if you're in business or you know, working with teams, have you ever noticed when a whole team doesn't understand it but nobody's willing to admit it? Like there might be somebody they're telling everything, okay, here's what we're doing, here's what's going on. And the whole team's like, oh yeah, yeah. And then they go home not knowing and hope somebody figures out, uh, but it's not gonna be me, you know. Um, well, the disciples, I love that they pulled Jesus aside. Now, what was that whole thing about the terrorists? Like, what does that all mean? And I like that. Do any of us ever um, wanna look like the dupe that doesn't get it? Uh, but actually, one of the things you and I can do is turn to Jesus, even when you're reading your Bible devotionally, and say, Lord, I don't understand this, but turn to the Lord and say, Lord, I don't get this. And would you by your Holy Spirit teach me this section of scripture? And that's a great way to you know, get to it. Now you can also study other great Bible scholars. And I mean, we have so many people that have gone before us studying scripture, sermons, commentaries. It's been really helpful. But ultimately, I think it's really important that you have the Lord sort of open up scripture to you when you don't understand things. And the disciples, are, this is a great example of that. They're coming and asking Jesus, uh, can you kind of fill us in on that one about the terrors? So verse 37, he answered and said unto them, he that soweth, soweth the good seed um, is the son of man. Uh, so far, we have what we, we've been calling expositional constancy, right? The one sowing the seed is the son of man. But now let's get into it deeper. Verse 38, the field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fires, so shall it be in the end of this world the son of man shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and them which do iniquity and shall cast them into a furnace of fire and, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth and then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father who hath ears to hear, let him hear. Wow, so here we got it. Uh, this, this pretty profound um, sort of deal. Now, uh, in, in case you missed it last time, let's just do a quick reading of the parable again. Verse 24, it says, uh, Jesus spoke another parable saying, the kingdom of heaven is likened to man which sowed good seed, verse 24, in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the weeds, the wheat or weeds, uh, and went his way. But when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, it, um, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said, Sir, um, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence hath it, uh, then has tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servants said unto him, Well, thou then that we go and gather them up? But he said, No, uh, lest while you gather the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in this time of harvest, I will say unto the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, Bind them in bundles to burn them and gather them the wheat in my barn. 
Okay, so let's break this down. Um, this, is, this is Jesus giving us commentary on his own uh, parable. This is, this is pretty in-depth too. But as he explains it here in, in verses um, 38 through 43, the first thing we see, of course, the sower is Jesus Christ. He makes that clear. The next thing is the field is the world. And um, I, I showed you this on Sunday when I was talking about the next parables. Um, but uh, I wanna, like I said, this is another parable. But I think that the... Uh, these, these all kind of correlate one to another in sort of an important way. Now, uh, some of you might be like, well, I don't see expositional constancy. Shouldn't the field be the hearts of men? Because that was the soil of the sower of the seed. Well, I see that as working well together. Um, the field is the greater field. That's, that's the world. But in the field, there's different types of soil. There's the, the wayside that people trample down. There's the fluffed up tilled soil. There's the, the soil that's got thorns uh, and, and thistles. You see, it just depends on what the condition of soil, and that's the heart of man. So the, the individual heart is represented by the soil while the field is represented by the world. So that's where you, you kind of have to be, I think, somewhat creative to see the connections. So, the, um, so all that to say, you got the sower, the field, and then you have the good seed, um, which are the children of the kingdom. Um, now, again, you say, but Brett, wasn't the good seed in the first parable of the sower, uh, the, the word? Um, but yes, you say, uh, but what happened to the soil? Uh, when the seed hit the soil, it brought forth good fruit. And that good fruit uh, is what the good seed became. Are you guys with me on that? The good seed became good fruit, which is the children of the kingdom. Uh, again, it all fits together if you, if you kind of think about it creatively for a second. Um, now, it says uh, in Matthew, by the way, um, uh, seven, we were um, you know, reading this a few weeks ago, but I wanna remind you, he says, enter ye into the straight gate or the narrow gate, um, and broad is the way that leads to destruction, Many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, or narrow, uh, and narrow is the way which leads to life, and few there be that find it. Um, so when Jesus talked about this, uh, it's, it's a little disconcerting that there's a narrow way that leads to eternal life, and there's a broad path that leads to destruction, but it, it lines up with this, uh, the parable of the sower, if you remember, that how, many, how many of the good seed fell on good soil it was one seed in four. 25% of the seed brought forth good fruit. And so that sort of contributes to that narrow success rate of what the word does in a person's heart. Um, and uh, that, that's telling. Don't be shocked when you share the word with people and it's not always received well. Um, I, I think we should think that that is somewhat norm, normal. Uh, narrow is the way that leads to salvation. So back to our thing. Then it says, uh, Jesus said, tares, the good seed is the good children of the kingdom, but the tares are the children of the wicked one. Uh, and the enemy sowed that seed, and that seed brought forth evil in the wicked, the, 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 the enemies uh, of, of God, really. Uh, and, um, and then, you know, he goes on and, and fills in all the other blanks. The enemy himself, Jesus says, is Satan. Uh, the harvest is the end of the world. And then uh, the reapers are the angels. Now, this is an interesting image. When you look at the angels will come at the end of the world and, and uh, you know, gather together all the tares or as it says here, the children of the wicked one. Do you ever wonder if the angels, I mean, this is just me probably being weird, but do the angels just sit up and go, Lord, can we go now? Can we go yet? Come on, Lord. Just watching humanity be stupid. 
Like the angels are just probably scratching their heads with their wings going, what's going on here, man? These, Lord, you're so patient and let us harvest these tares and bundle them up and throw them into the fires of hell. Um, but that's, that's kind of an interesting part. At the end of the world, the angels will come separately uh, and gather the, the bad tares, throw them in the place of weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. That's the place called Gehenna, which is our you know, Greek word for hell. And then they're gonna, um, and then they're gonna harvest the good, the good seed. Um, one of the things that you have to see in this, and, and again, if you go to the wrong churches that only talk about the good stuff, they forget to talk about the bad stuff. And, and I think that's detrimental to your faith to understand the good, the bad, and the ugly. You gotta understand all that stuff, otherwise you don't understand. So if you go to a church that just, oh, we talk about your victory and you know, how you're gonna be successful and awakening the giant within you and, and all this stuff, you're a good person and people like you and those kind of churches, watch out. Um, you, gotta, you gotta love you know, mercy and grace and the Lord's salvation and kindness and his uh, goodness, uh, gentleness, the hope we have in heaven, of course. I love talking about that. But you also have to talk about judgment, wrath, holiness, righteousness, hell, eternal death, things like that. If you don't tell the whole story, then you're not really telling what Jesus taught. Jesus shows both sides of the coin here. There's good seed and there's bad seed. Um, there's good seed and there's tares. There's children of the kingdom, children of the wicked. When we talked about this on Sunday, kingdom of the light, kingdom of the, of the darkness. And what, the question is, which one are you part of? Um, but, but verse 42 is one that you'll never hear from some churches. And they shall cast them, uh, the, the children of the wicked one, uh, into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Um, if that's true, which it is, because Jesus said it, they're red letters. What should we be thinking about the children of the wicked one? You know, I, I think this is an important thing, especially as elections bring out the ugly and just about everybody. Um, I wonder if maybe we, instead of looking at, uh, you know, the other side as our enemies and stuff, I wonder if we look at them as like, look, look at where many of these people are lost, unsaved, and they're headed for hell and destruction. Like that should be very sobering to us as Christians. And um, I, I almost get a sense in some circles that we have a certain sense of glee to understand, you know, that they're, they're all gonna be doomed or whatever. We should be like, uh, like the Lord. Oh, he says, you know, I would that none should perish. Um, you know, Jesus died for sinners like us, but he also died for sinners like them. And you never know which one of them will accept Christ and be saved and become part of the children of the kingdom. And I'm not willing to sign someone off until the Lord is willing to sign someone off. And so we should be praying for the unsaved more than ever. You and I are living in days where we gotta share the good news of the gospel. And to share the good news, I think you also have to kind of share the bad news that we're all sinners. We all fall short. The wages of sin is death and hell, but the gift of God is eternal life. Um, so, you know, when you, when you read this parable of the terrors, it's kind of terrifying. Uh, you say, Brett, this is a terrible parable. Uh, <laughs> But I've, <laughs> but I've got ter terrific news uh, for you that, um, that Jesus Christ died for sinners like us destined for hell. When, um, I love when Jesus said, you know, in John chapter 19, verse 30, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up the ghost. What was finished? The work of salvation for people like us who were headed for hell. Um, I'm, I'm so blessed we're saved by his imputed 
righteousness. Um, imputed righteousness is a doctrine that Paul talks about in the book of Romans, and it just means the righteousness of Christ is placed on you. It's like we were talking about being robed in righteousness uh, uh, last Sunday and Saturday. It's that, that's what imputed righteousness. Uh, treated as if uh, we were righteous, as if it was our own, because Christ superimposes it over you. Uh, and the only way you can be righteous is through Jesus Christ, accepting, believing, embracing Jesus and the work of the cross. Um, now, by the way, it's funny because the disciples, when they hear this kind of stuff, they're hearing Jesus talk about, you know, hell and terrors being thrown into the fires and stuff. Um, and do you get a sense that the disciples were a little nervous? Like, remember in John 14, after Jesus was saying, I'm gonna leave you guys. And, uh, and, and the disciples are a little troubled. So Jesus said, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. I go to prepare a place for you. And if it were not so, I would have told you. And, and then Thomas, again, not, not, people call him, you know, doubting Thomas. But I love that Thomas asked Jesus. You know, uh, do you remember in John 14 there, verse five and six, Thomas said to him, Lord, we know not whither you goest and how can we know the way? Uh, good question. Like, I'm so thankful he asked that question because if he didn't ask that question, we wouldn't have this verse in the Bible. One of the greatest verses in the Bible, if you ask me, um, Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Like that, that's, that's, uh, that's Christianity 101 right there. Um, you gotta know that one. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. There's no way to heaven but through Jesus. Only Jesus saves. So a lot of these parables um, having to do with seeds, but, but one, now this is where we need to do a little bit of a deeper dive. Um, because the seed uh, analogy is all throughout the scriptures. And man, we could spend weeks talking about carpology. That is the study of the seeds. Um, but I'm not gonna spend weeks, but I'm gonna do a little real quick lightning introduction. Are you guys ready for that? Um, uh, you can jot these down. You can flip back to these passages, but let's go all the way back to Genesis chapter one. This is where the tale of two seeds begins. Remember the story of the tale of two cities? Well, I'm gonna talk about the tale of two seeds. And that's what the whole Bible's about. I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding. Um, so in Genesis chapter uh, uh, one, verses 11 through 13, it says, and God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, and the fruit tree yielding fruit after his kind, whose seed is in itself upon the earth. And it was so. And the earth brought forth grass and herb yielding seed after its, his kind, and the tree yielding fruit whose seed was in itself after his kind. Now this, this whole uh, uh, kind thing is something we often miss, but the Lord is very specific that each seed has its own kind, um, which is kind of interesting, especially when you talk about evolutionary theory. It doesn't work and it doesn't fit if you do the math. But I'm not gonna, I'm gonna resist the temptation to dive into that one. But after this, each seed has its kind. And after Jesus, or God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit, all three were there, saw that it was good. What was good? All of his creation, all of the seed that was created after his kind. And the evening and the morning were the third day. So this is part of creation. The seed is a very big deal in how he created seed and how it replicates itself. You know, it says the seed is within itself. And after it grows, it drops more seed and then it flourishes. Uh, you know, last year, I think Debbie planted two sunflower stalks uh, near our garden and it was awesome. And then this year, 50 sunflower stalks grew up around that area. Like, uh, uh, it's kind of funny how seed works, right? 
But um, all that to say, after its kind. Um, now, the uh, inference there is that the seed, because God saw that it was good, that is the seed was good. But then what happens? Uh, after that, and you go for next chapter, Genesis chapter two. And it says, and the Lord God took man, put him in the garden of Eden to dress it and to keep it. Now, this is an interesting thing. You, sh you should understand what this word keep means. Um, uh, we'll talk about that in a second. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, of every tree of the garden, you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat of it. For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. Question, what happened between Genesis chapter one and Genesis chapter two that suddenly brought a seed in the garden that grew a tree of the knowledge of good and evil that if you ate of it, you'd die? Suddenly we got bad seed, if you would, or bad fruit. Would you agree that the tree of knowledge of good and fruit, it was kind of something they shouldn't have done? That's an easy one, hello. Yeah, yeah, that was bad. Don't eat on the tree of knowledge. They did that uh, and it caused us all to be in sin for the rest of all eternity. Either, anyway, uh, yeah, it's a bad thing. So you say, okay, Brent, uh, yeah, I got it. But th this idea of keeping it, um, what, what does that mean? See, we, we see the Garden of Eden, he was supposed to dress it. So he was literally tending the garden. But the word keep, the Hebrew word there is an interesting Hebrew word. Um, it, it's the word shamar, which means to guard that's the number one definition, guard, observe, give heed, to be on one's guard, to take heed, to take care, beware. Um, why was he supposed to guard the garden? That's why they called it the garden. No, I'm just kidding, I, I'm sorry. Um, no, he was supposed to guard the garden. That was part of his job description. Guard it from what? Well, as it turns out, Lucifer sneaks into the garden and there he is hanging in a tree that grew, that is now suddenly forbidden. And you, you have to agree, what happened to the seed to make it dangerous to eat? Um, so we suddenly have seed in the Garden of Eden that's already uh, corrupted, if you would. Um, by the way, um, do you guys remember, um, when was the bad seed, seed sown in our parable of the tares, where the bad seed was sown? What, what? Men were sleeping. Adam's job was to guard the garden. And somewhere, I think along the way, he may have dropped the ball on that. Um, that that's, that's maybe speculation. But, you know, basically they chomped on the fruit, eating uh, something, mixing good seed with bad. Now, if you get all the way to Genesis chapter three, you fast forward to Genesis chapter three, then you've got this interesting thing after Adam and Eve are caught in their sin, the Lord starts divvying out you know, the curses on man and Satan and uh, woman and all that stuff. But there's an operative phrase there in Genesis 3.15. This is a fancy little verse uh, that we call the Proto-Evangelium. The what? The, the first mention of the gospel is what that fancy word means. And it's right here. I will put enmity between thee, the serpent, and the woman, and between thy seed and her seed. Um, it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. Huh? Um, it, meaning her seed, shall bruise thy head. Who's that? This, uh, the, the corrupt seed or Satan himself. Um, bru you know, her seed, the woman's seed, will bruise the head of the serpent and thou, the serpent, shall bruise his, her seed, his heel. What in the world? Why is that the Proto-Evangelium? It's talking about the seed of the woman will come and ultimately bruise the head of the serpent and, and he will bruise the heel of the woman's seed. 
that's speaking of, um, that's why, by the way, at Christmas time when we sing, you know, round yon virgin, that's not a big round pregnant lady that we're singing about. Um, we're talking about a virgin who had never knew, known a man sexually. Um, and this is an interesting thing because uh, the, uh, the, the operative thing here is you might say, well, the Bible made a mistake because women don't have seed. That comes from the man. Um, it's an interesting, you know, Hebrew word there, uh, zira, which means seed, sowing, offspring. But if you keep looking down the definitions there, it gets to uh, sperm and semen. That's what it's talking about. And so what a weird verse saying that it'd be her seed that would eventually bruise the head uh, of the serpent. You say, what's going on here? Well, as it turns out, this is all part of the story of two seeds. There's corrupt seed, and then there's good seed all throughout the Bible. Um, the battle between one seed and another. And it just keeps going on and on. Genesis chapter four, the next chapter, Cain and Abel. There's enmity between them. Um, there's new seed that is needed it's Genesis chapter four, verse 25. Adam knew his wife again, and she bare a son and called his name Seth. For God said, she hath appointed me another seed instead of Abel, whom Cain slew. You see, there was this uh, enmity between the two seeds again. Uh, and, and you see this all throughout the Bible. It just gets really crazy. And you can see the different enmity or en enemies of Jacob and Esau, Ishmael and Isaac. Um, the, the story just keeps going on and on through the Bible where the seed is at enmity. And even the story of Noah, the, the, the idea of Noah was not, his seed was not corrupt. When it says Noah was not corrupted as were you know, the rest of the people in the world. So it's kind of an interesting thing. The battle of the seed goes on and on. But where's the end of the tale of two seeds? I'm, gonna I'm giving you the highlights. But if you wanna fast forward to the last chapter, um, the, the end of the corrupt seed I believe it has a lot to do with like what we were reading on the prophecy update last uh, Friday. Um, and that is 2 Thessalonians chapter two, verse seven and eight. For the mystery of iniquity doth already work. Only he who now letteth will let, that's the Holy Spirit working through the church, until he be taken out of the way. Then shall that wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. When is the corrupt seed ultimately um, shown fully in Satan, you know, ruling as the antichrist on this world and that whole scenario, it's gonna happen when Jesus Christ returns and rules and reigns in his kingdom. That's gonna be the end of the story of the seed. But I, I'm, the reason I'm kind of trying to, you know, plant the seed <laughs> about the, the tale of two seeds is because when you see it, you can't unsee it. It's one of those things in the Bible that you see it all through the pages of scripture, like, wow, more corrupt seed that's involved with trying to, to mess with the good seed of the word of God. And man, we can talk about the parable of the terrors and the seed of, uh, that's good fruit. This is all part of that, that whole picture. Hopefully that was helpful. I may have just made it more confusing. But uh, anyway, we move on now to parable number five. And we looked at this this weekend. Um, and that's the parable of the treasure. Uh, and that begins in verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to treasure hid in a field, which when a man hath found, he hideth, and for joy thereof goeth and selleth all that he hath and buyeth the field. Again, verse 45. The kingdom of heaven is like unto a merchant man seeking goodly pearls, who when he had found one pearl of great price, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. 
Now, these are the two parables we went over uh, that I call the micro parables because they're tiny. Um, but uh, if you were with us, I'm not gonna go over all that again, but I was kind of giving you sort of the first tier understanding of that. Uh, if you'd allow me tonight just to maybe wet your whistle for a, maybe a second tier, that's kind of interesting. When you read stuff in the Bible that seems redundant, I'm pretty sure it's not because the Bible's not redundant. Wouldn't you agree with that? Redundancy is something that seems like a wrong error or a mistake. The Bible's not erroneous. So it makes me always wonder, when I see things that are sort of repetitive, it makes me question and wonder why. So we got these two parables. And, and, and on Sunday, I talked about how, you know, that we're the treasure that Christ gave is all for, we're the pearl that he gave is all for. And I believe that's all true, generally speaking. But there's some interesting uh, speculation that we could also talk about um, and, and it has to do with, um, you know, this whole thing. Uh, the other layer, could it be that we're talking about different people groups with each one of these similar parables? I showed you two on Sunday. There's a third one that goes in kind of a trilogy pack here um, that I think is talking about three different possible groups. Um, let's talk about tier number one in verse 44. Again, the kingdom of heaven is likened to a treasure. Now, um, I told you one wrong inter interpretation is this, the treasure is Jesus and we have to give all so that we can have the treasure of Jesus. And, uh, and you'll read that in commentaries, but that's, that's, not, that's not constant throughout the Bible. Is, how do you get Jesus? Do you give all your possessions so you can be saved? No, no, that's, that's the wrong interpretation. But the idea is the treasure, as it turns out, is you. And Christ gave his all, gave everything, dying on the cross to for the sins of the world, the world is the field, again, expositional constancy, and he died on the cross that he could get the treasure out of the world. That's us. And I also kind of said uh, that the pearl would be us as well, but I taught this like 14 years ago, so I'm gonna resurface this again and throw it out for what you think. But if you're a Bible reader, this idea of the treasure is always associated with the Jews themselves. Could it be that the first parable here of the treasure um, is speaking about the Jewish people. Let me give you a few scriptures. You can jot them down. Psalm 135, verse four. It says, for the Lord hath chosen Jacob, that's another name for Israel, unto himself, and Israel for his what? Peculiar treasure. Whoops, I pushed that too far. Or it's gone, it just disappeared. Um, <laughs> voila. Um, let's see if we can get that back. Uh, there it is. Uh, for the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his peculiar treasure. Mark that, that's an interesting uh, description. Would you say the Jews are a peculiar treasure? Like that's a really appropriate delineation if you ask me. If you know the history of the Jews and what have you and the way God has blessed them and protected them, but they've also been so cursed in so many other ways. Um, but it's not just there, it's also um, in uh, Exodus 19.5. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then it says, you shall be a peculiar treasure. Again, speaking of the Jews, unto me above all people for all the earth is mine. So they are God's peculiar treasure. The Bible says that. Um, and he has a plan and a purpose for them. And you have to understand also, Jesus died on the cross, not just for Gentiles, he died for the Jews as well. Um, Abraham believed God and it was counted him for righteousness. But we also have to understand theologically, Jesus died on the cross for the sins of Abraham too, so that Abraham 
uh, futuristically would be saved if you would. Um, that's why the Jews celebrated Passover, slew a lamb, put it on the altar because they were saved by blood sacrifice. And the lambs that they would slay would only point to Jesus, the lamb that would die for the sins of the Jews. So um, this is kind of the first layer. What about the parable of the pearl, parable number six? Well, could it be that that is a depiction of the Gentiles? Um, why would I suggest that? Uh, question, where do oysters come from? Yeah, some of you said it, the sea. In the Bible, uh, you Bible buffs, especially Bible prophecy buffs, what is the sea always speaking of when you talk about Bible stuff? The nations of the world. That's an interesting thing. And we have definite scriptures where I can point you to, we don't have time tonight, but um, that, that lay that out pretty clearly. But as it turns out, um, oysters come from the sea, which is kind of interesting. And did you know that the Jews, they don't generally like the sea? Uh, they're not oceanic type people or you know, people that like to seafaring uh, people they, they, throughout history. The, the, the Jews have almost never had a, nat uh, a navy historically. And even their navy today is fairly minimal compared to all their other military prowess. Their, their navy is pretty minimal. Um, it's kind of a funny thing. But the reason why is also, did you know oysters, that's an unclean, you know, shellfish. Uh, they're not into that kind of stuff. So as it turns out, during the time of Christ, guess what? Pearls were not valuable to, to the Jews. They could care less about pearls. So here's Jesus talking about the pearl of great price. And a lot of Jews would be like, meh, whatever. But it would be the Gentiles. What'd you say? Pearl? A pearl of great price? We'll take that. Because they didn't care about unclean shellfish nor do I when I eat clam chowder. <laughs> but all that to say, uh, could it be that the, the first parable is speaking of the Jews, how Jesus gave it all for the Jews, that they'd be bought with the price. The second parable, the parable of uh, the pearl of great price, could that be the Gentiles that were purchased for, by the same, the same cost? Jesus gave it all for us Gentiles. Well, that brings us to parable number seven, the parable of the net is what we're gonna call that. And this is also linked to these other two parables. Who could this be te teaching us about? A third group of people, possibly. Let's read on. It says in verse 47, again, the kingdom of heaven is uh, like unto a net that was cast into the sea and gathered of every kind, uh, which when it was full, they drew it to shore and sat down and gathered the good into vessels but cast the bad away. So you're casting good and bad away. Um, so shall it be at the end of the world. The angels shall come forth and sever the wicked from among the just and shall cast them into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, at first blush, you kind of say, well, I see this as similar as the parable of the tares. Yeah. And it is interesting because we are talking about with this particular little micro parable of the net, we see the end of the world brought up. And I wonder if that gives us a little bit of a heads up of which group. The first group, the, the treasure field was the Jews. The, the, the pearl would be the Gentiles. But could it be that these people that are caught in the net are the tribulation saints? Um, interesting, because we know there's a whole group of people and they're all kind of part of different dispensations. If you're a dispensationalist, what I am, we went over this a few weeks ago. Um, the Jews are a different part of that dispensation in the Old Testament and then we're in the, the church age. And then you've got a whole other dispensation during the tribulation period. And there's gonna be a ton of people saved during the tribulation. We call them the tribulation saints. 
Some people say, we're gonna have to go through the tribulation because you see believers in the tribulation. That's just a wrong conclusion. The rapture of the church is gonna happen. We're gonna be in heaven. Meanwhile, there's gonna be a ton of Jews and Gentiles who will be saved and believed during the tribulation period. And you know, the net imagery is perfect because you're gonna be caught pretty much by a net. If you're gonna be saved in the tribulation period, the net is the perfect example, analogy. Uh, you'll be caught up one way or the other and you'll be sorted out, the good and the bad. Uh, and it's more of an enforced sort of uh, uh, kind of deal. So uh, this, this could be the this tribulation saints. I've also heard another interpretation that kind of attributes this to the, the sheep and the goat judgment. Uh, for you Bible students, some people uh, put that there. But in Revelation chapter seven, in the tribulation period, verse 13 and 14, it says, one of the elders answered saying to me, what are these which are arrayed in white robes and whence came they? And I said unto him, sir, thou knowest. And he said unto me, these are they which came out of great tribulation and have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the lamb. Um, and so isn't that something that, um, that, you know, the tribulation is gonna bring a bunch of believers. So I believe that's who we're talking about possibly here. By the way, this idiom of the net and fish, that's not new, is it? Uh, Jesus said I'll, to the disciples, I'll make you fishers of men. I love that story in John 21, uh, verses 10 and 11. Jesus said, and bring the fish which you have caught now. And Simon Peter went up, drew the net to the land full of great fishes. And uh, it says 153 fish were in there. And for all, there were so many, yet the net was not broken. Great, isn't it funny the Bible gives us that number that there were 153 fish in the net? Who cares? Well, I think the Bible doesn't just put stuff in there for our health. Oh, was 153, good, good day fishing, I guess. Um, no, there, there, there's kind of a cool thing that happened. Uh, several years ago, uh, they were doing um, some, you know, studies of the fish in the Sea of Galilee. And as it turns out, um, they found that during the first century, about that time, guess how many species of fish they've identified in the Sea of Galilee? 153 species of fish. And all of us Bible people went, what? 153? Um, and here's the Lord talking about the nations. I'm gonna gather all the nations, every kindred tongue. Like it's such a perfect example, all the different types of fish. Uh, and Peter just happened to catch the same amount that later we know as the species of fish in Galilee. I love that stuff. But no one should perish. Um, the, the Lord wants all to come re to repentance. This is the Lord wanting to catch more people, whether it's the Jews, the Gentiles, or the tribulation saints. It reminds me of 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, word, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So there you have it. Uh, those are the, the, the main parables there. Uh, uh, let's, let's, go, let's move on. Verse 51, uh, it says in verse 51, Jesus said unto them, have ye understood all these things? Now, what would you say? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I, I love this, because check out, Jesus asked the disciples, have you understood all these things? They said unto him, yea, Lord. <laughs> now, what's funny about this is you and I can deduce that they don't understand all these things. And I'm not knocking them. I'm, I'm sure I would have been worse than they were. Um, we can look back in hindsight and see that the disciples don't even know who really Jesus is yet. They're still trying to figure out what he's all about and what he's gonna do, and they have no idea. You and I can read these parables. Oh, well, this was about that. Was the, but uh, these poor guys, uh, sure, yeah, Lord. Um, then verse 52, he uh, said he unto them, 
Therefore, every scribe which is instructed unto the kingdom of heaven is likened to a man that is a householder, which bringeth forth out of his treasure things new and old. Now this, this is a little thing here that's a little hard to maybe um, discern, but um, when, as soon as we read scribe, we, you and I are tempted to think evil. As soon as we hear the word scribe, it's like, oh, scribe, Pharisee, Sadducee, evil. But that's not really the context. Uh, during the time of Ezra, that's when the scribes came into play. And the scribes were into studying, learning, um, making manuscripts of the, of the, of the, um, the scriptures. And so in a positive context, Jesus is basically saying, if, if you understand these things, that's why he asked, do you guys understand all this stuff? He's saying, if you understand these things, you'll be like the scribe who owns a house in which um, he has new innovations along with some old uh, antiques and cool old stuff too. That's kind of what he's saying. If you understand the kingdom, you can read the Old Testament um, and get blessed and you can look at history and marvel at all the old stories throughout the ages and how the Lord continually works through humanity and just be blessed. But you can also draw from the New Testament and understand what the Lord is doing creatively and powerfully. And I would even add to that, not just in the New Testament, but in these last days, um, we get to see how the Lord's working. Um, I think the true person who's trying to understand scripture is gonna really be thankful for the old, the antiques, if you would, but also be really excited about the innovation, the new. Now, this is where you have to be really careful because remember that old saying, if it's new, it's not true. Uh, I'm still standing by that. Anybody who's got new doctrine or new theology, well, they're probably whacked. Watch out for them. Um, but when it comes to Bible prophecy and our understanding, having new understandings of what the Bible says as it relates to the, what's going on around us, that's something the Bible says we can jump on board and be excited about that. Uh, but I love the solidity of, of, the, of the Bible and how we don't have to worry about finding new, exciting things. Uh, there's enough here for a lifetime. Well, uh, verse 54 goes on. Uh, verse 53, pardon me. It says, and it came to pass... Um, uh, that when Jesus had finished these parables, he departed thence. And when he was come into his own country, he taught them in their synagogue, insomuch that they were astonished and said, whence hath this man this wisdom, this wisdom and these mighty works? Well, you notice in verse 54 that, <coughs> you know, it's kind of funny that again, the fact that in Christ's day, they never questioned whether or not he could perform miracles. Uh, that's amazing to me. Yeah, he's, whatever, he's, committed, he's doing miracles, yeah. But it's like, that's not what stumbled them as much. <clears throat> it seems like the miracles should have only confirmed who he was, but it never really worked out that way. Their question was, you know, where did this guy get his wisdom? Um, and where does he get, the, the, you know, how, do, how does he do these mighty works? But it's not a question like where we want to be a part of this. It's more of where is this coming from? And they're being cynical and critical. Um, but they're basically unbelievers. They're still acknowledging Jesus' wisdom without believing in Jesus. Uh, all who heard Jesus, they could tell he had some weight behind what he was saying. You know, there was like, well, he says stuff that's kind of heavy. And, he, and remember, people marveled that he spoke as one having authority, not like the scribes or the Pharisees. Um, but it goes on, um, um, verse 55, is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary? and his brothers, James and Joseph, and uh, Simon and Judas? 
Um, by the way, this is not Judas Iscariot, and you gotta kind of be careful who these brothers and sisters of Jesus are. Um, it's obvious that the Lord had brothers and sisters. Of course, they were half-brothers and half-sisters of, of Jesus, and they were also younger than he was, um, but they were born to both Mary and Joseph. Um, and by the way, Jesus's brothers and sisters would not understand really who he was until after his resurrection. That's what made his brothers and sisters start to say, oh yeah, he really is. Can you imagine what it was like growing up with a perfect brother? <laughs> Your mom saying, why can't you just be more like Jesus? <laughs> um, tough, tough thing being brother or sister of Jesus. Um, but interestingly, they, you know, maybe they thought of Mr. Perfect but they didn't really believe uh, until afterward. Now, one of the things I love about that is afterward, James would be willing to die a brutal, horrible, torturous death, saying he was God in the flesh. Um, and he, that was a guy who grew up with him, who was willing to say that. Why? Why did James believe? Because Jesus said, if you destroy this body, in three days I'll raise it up, and that's what happened, so he believed. That's kind of important. Now, in verse 56, this is a tremendous revelation. Note that it was that lim limited the, um, you know, um, what, what was it that I would say um, limited the power of Jesus to do his thing? Or you might say, what limited Jesus from doing what he really wanted to do with these people? The, the single word, unbelief. That's the problem. It says here in verse um, 56, and his sisters, are they all not with us? Whence hath this man all these things? But they were offended in him, but Jesus said unto them, a prophet is not without honor, save in his own country and in his own house. And he did not many mighty works there because of their unbelief. Ooh, unbelief is the, the thing that sort of stops short that which Jesus would wanna do in your life. Um, I, wonder, I wonder what problem you and I have that Jesus is right there saying, I, I can fix that, I can do that, but it's our unbelief perhaps that is uh, cutting short. Well, all that to say, um, maybe that's the cue to end for tonight as I'm getting that dastardly uh, tickle. Let's pray. Lord, we pray your blessing now as we go our way. I thank you for your word that's living and powerful. I pray that you would do a, a work, Lord, in our hearts, Lord, letting these scriptures do, um, do their work in our lives. So bless your church tonight as we go our way in Jesus' name. Amen.